As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate Two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. Welcome to The Secret Ingredient. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with our podcast, every week we have a secret ingredient on The Secret Ingredient. Uh, and the secret ingredient ranges from sugar to communes. This week's secret ingredient is glyphosate. My name is Raj Patel. I'm a professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpott. I am the food correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. And I'm Rebecca McEnroy with KUT Radio. And welcome to this secret ingredient special, Pesticides, Science and Subterfuge, produced here at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Roundup herbicide by Monsanto. There's never been a herbicide like it before. If you don't know what glyphosate is, you should. It's probably inside you right now. It's a herbicide that's in the blood of most Americans, as far as we can tell, and it's the subject of multiple lawsuits over whether it causes cancer. Now, we'll get to the bottom of that in this hour, but before we do, we're joined now by Scott Partridge, who is the Vice President of Global Strategy at Monsanto Company. Um, Scott, what does it mean to be Vice President of Global Strategy, very quickly? Well, I spend a good deal of my time working with uh, the public, making sure they understand what our role is and how we're trying to help uh, growers around the world uh, produce more yield, more stuff, using fewer inputs and protecting the environment. That's that's what I spend most of my time doing. You know, when you look at the challenges we face and the different different abilities that growers have uh, to produce yield to to feed a growing population, the challenges, they're diverse and they're huge. you know, I think two years ago, the average corn farmer in America produced 179 bushels per acre. Uh, the average farmer in Europe, 129 bushels of corn per acre. And in sub-Saharan Africa, 29 bushels per acre. So there's, there's, there's a need for, uh, for us to help growers around the globe improve, uh, improve agriculture, improve their lives, and produce more. That's the job I have now, and it's it's energizing, it's exciting. It's also not without controversy, as you right. all know. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's just break right into the controversy, Scott, um, into the topic at hand. And, and that is the fundamental question that this episode is looking at, which is, does glyphosate cause cancer? What is the Monsanto um, uh, you know, answer to that question? Yeah, I think, uh, you, you know, our answer is in, in line with uh, – with all of the uh, all of the peer-reviewed scientific studies, the answer is clearly clearly no. And if you look at it and put it in context, um, glyphosate it's an important it's a useful tool, and it has a proven safety record of over 40 years of use um, around the globe. Uh, and there has been no more studied product that's been used in over 160 countries. Uh, it, has, it has changed agriculture dramatically. It has enabled growers to move to no-till, where they're not doing dragging machines over the soil to turn the soil over and lose moisture and topsoil. And, you know, it's reduced farmer injuries as a result of not having so much equipment being used. Conservation tillage is huge. Uh, maintaining moisture, we know there's we know that climate change, we're encountering um, 
challenges with less water uh, to be able to be used with agriculture. Uh, we also know that it's, it has benign human health uh, effects and it has a completely safe environmental profile. You know, when you look at where it's been studied around the world, um, regulators in Europe, U.S., Korea, Japan, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, I know I'm leaving some out, uh, they all have studied glyphosate and determined that it doesn't cause cancer, and they've done so over and over and over again. Not a single regulatory agency has opined that uh, glyphosate causes cancer, and of the 800-plus studies, peer-reviewed, scientific medical studies, not a single one associates, associates uh, glyphosate with cancer. Scott Partridge makes this great case for Roundup. Like, this seems to be the savior of the world and is going to help the company feed the entire world. So what's the problem? Like, what could possibly go wrong with Roundup? Well, uh, of course, that's absurd. We uh, in the United States use uh, a huge amount of glyphosate, and we have 40 million Americans who are food insecure. Um, there's clearly a very long distance between the use of a particular herbicide and feeding the world. And yet we hear all the time that, uh, you know, it, it's uh, the, this this corporation has nothing but uh, the, the, the well-being of every human being in the cockles of its heart. Uh, whereas, in fact, its main uh, goal as a publicly traded company is to make a profit. And this herbicide has been incredibly profitable. So, I mean, I, I take objection with this idea that, um, you know, the, the company's in the business of feeding everyone when clearly it isn't. Then there's the obvious problem of if you use an herbicide, really any chemical over and over again in the same piece of land and an ever expanding sort of uh, area of land, what's going to happen is inevitable. Um, and that is that the, the things that you're trying to kill with it are going to develop resistance. Um, some of those weeds are going to have some kind of gene in them that helps them resist this this chemical, and those ones are going to stay alive and pass on, and you're going to develop this resistance problem. Now, in the 70s, when, when glyphosate came out, uh, Monsanto said that we think that resistance is, is highly unlikely to develop. There's something in the way that this chemical works that is going to be very difficult for weeds to develop resistance. Um, and then again in the 90s, so what happens in the 90s is that Monsanto comes out with genetically modified crops designed to resist the chemical. So you can dump it on the ground even when the crops are up and kill the weeds and the plant survives. And a lot of people were saying at that time that this is going to generate resistance. And you're gonna, it's going to lead to the undoing of this, uh, of this chemical. And Monsanto said that it wouldn't be a problem, that there's something in this chemical that makes it impossible for weeds to develop resistance. Well, you know, flash forward, you know, 20 or more years later after the introduction of GMO crops and resistance is engulfing the areas where the chemical is used and they're having to use, they're having to engineer um, new chemicals, revert to old chemicals to, to deal with that problem. And it's a case of, Monsanto saying something um, at the time, you know, assuring the public that this bad thing wouldn't happen, and then it happens. And that leads us to something else that um, has been a question from the start, and that is, is this toxic to people? Is it toxic to wildlife? Um, and once again, we have a company saying, no, this is, uh, this is very safe. Um, they compared it to table salt. You know, it's as safe as table salt uh, from the very start. 
And I think the topic of this show is figuring out if that claim was more or less credible than the claim that this chemical would not develop resistance down the road. And that's why we interviewed John Barton. John is a retired third-generation farmer uh, currently living in Bakersfield, California. John is a father, a veteran, uh, a former police officer, and farmer who is exposed to Roundup on his fields uh, and is therefore uh, a plaintiff in uh, a suit against Monsanto. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, John, um, let, let's ju- jump right into it. Uh, why are you uh, taking Monsanto to court? Well, <clears throat> I am a third-generation farmer, like you said. Uh, in uh, 2015, I uh, discovered some lumps on my neck. Uh, I went to my local doctor here in Bakersfield. Uh, he didn't think it was an issue. He thought maybe it was swollen saliva glands. And so I wasn't really worried about it. Uh, so, you know, he said, well, let's get some antibiotics and probably go down. Well, about three months down the road, they didn't go down. And so I went to a local surgeon here in Bakersfield, uh, and he looked at the lumps, and he goes, you know, um, I am a little bit older, don't really want to deal with this because of all the nerves and everything that's in your neck. He said, you need to go down to uh, USC. So uh, me and my wife made the trip down to USC. I was operated on in August of 2015 to remove those lumps uh, the surgeon, my doctor there, Dr. Colcott, uh, said, uh, you know, hey, they don't look suspicious. Don't worry about it, you know. So I said, okay. Uh, but when we came back to post-op, uh, we found out that the the tumors they took out was cancerous, which was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, being healthy all my life, uh, that was a pretty big shock to me to hear the word cancer. And So that's when my journey started to discover or to find out, you know, what was the possibilities of of why I had this cancer. John, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your farm operation, what you farmed, and what sort of uh, exposure you had over the years to glyphosate as part of that operation. Sure, be glad to. Uh, Actually, I was raised on the farm. Uh, When I was young, we lived on the farm. until I was about 14, uh, we actually moved off the farm. <clears throat> and then, uh, of course, through high school, worked on the farm during the summer months. Uh, uh, after high school, I married my wife, uh, although almost 50 years now. And uh, uh, right about a year after high school, I was drafted into the military for two years. Uh, didn't really go back into farming for about three years. Uh, about 1976, my dad and my brothers uh, was buying a larger farming operation and asked me to come into the farming, uh, to be part of the farm, uh, family farm. Uh, So I did that. And about that time, Roundup came out, in which uh, Monsanto was saying this is the the wonder product. You know, it's safe. It's, uh, you know, safe as bath salt. So we began to spray uh, Roundup on the farm at that time. And until the time I retired in, in uh, uh, about 2005, we used it uh, not only to control weeds around our fields, 
We used it to actually do pre-defoliation on some of our cotton. You were asking about the crops that we grew. Our major crop was cotton. Here in the San Joaquin Valley, is cotton was keen for many, many years. We grew about 1,200 acres of cotton. We also grew sugar beets, uh, wheat, uh, sometimes uh, dehydrated onions, carrots. So we were basically a row crop uh, farming entity. Uh, we were a family farm. Uh, me and my brothers, uh, there was four boys and our father, uh, that basically we were the ones that did kind of all the dirty work on the farm. You know, we did the spraying, we did the mechanic work, uh, we did the welding. So we did all of the things that uh, the family would do to keep the farm running. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of your interactions around use, using this and then finding out that you had cancer. What were people saying? Were people shocked or, you know, were they were they talking about like, well, you know, we've known for a while that this is dangerous or what, what were kind of some of the conversations you were having with people? Well, you know, really a lot of people aren't saying a lot about it because, you know, this product is being used worldwide. And so... Uh, but I know my exposure to it. Uh, you know, the average homeowner, when they get a gallon of Roundup, is diluted to 1%. You can imagine that on the farm, in one day, I would use a 1,000 times more than that. Hmm. We had a 500-gallon tank. We would put five gallons down. This was when Roundup came out, and it was the very, very concentrated formulation of Roundup when they first came out. Uh, so we would put five gallons in a 500-gallon container. We would spray that in the morning, go have lunch, and then we would probably come back in the afternoon and spray that. And we would do that sometimes, you know, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks during the summer. We would do it during the spring. And what would happen is that we had a hose on this on this spray rig that was about 150 foot long. So we would have to actually walk out into the weeds around our reservoirs that we would want to control the weeds. And we would be spraying, and by the time we would get out, our clothes would be wet, our boots mm -hmm. would be wet, our socks would be wet. So there was a lot of exposure, not only... And then when if the wind changed back then, you know, they was telling us it was safe. There was really no protection for us to protect us from, say, wind shift or whatever, and it would blow in your face or, mm. you know, all over your skin, you know, if you were wearing, of course, in the summer in Bakersfield, it gets, you know, up to 110, so you, you, sometimes you're in there with a, you know, a T-shirt on, so. And so we had that exposure uh, for many, many years, and then when Monsanto came out with the idea, well, you can prep your cotton uh, for pre-defoliation, we would use uh, probably... Oh, we had at that time about 1,500 acres of cotton, and we would use a half a pint to to the acre to to prep our cotton for defoliation. So that exposure to me and uh, my brothers uh, were what we were exposed to compared to, say, the average person. Uh, one of the issues I do have is that as a father, I have three sons. Excuse me that have uh, been exposed to the, the same product. And uh, as a father, you never want to hurt your children. And 
now their exposure. You know, I, as a father, because I was told this product was safe, I would have them put backpacks on, go out in the cotton fields. When the cotton was small, spray Johnson grass or Bermuda grass or whatever. So in the summer months, my sons did that because Monsanto kept telling us this product was safe. So now, as a father, have I exposed my sons to something that can cause them health problems? So that's something that I have to live with. So John seems to say that if he knew that Roundup and glyphosate caused cancer, or even could have been dangerous, then he would have taken precautions. But what was Monsanto's responsibility to the public? Was it their responsibility in the 70s to let people know this could be toxic? That's a really difficult question because the way that it works is that starting in the 19, early 1970s, there's this thing called the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And when a company like Monsanto wanted to bring a new chemical out into the world, it would, it would have to uh, pass it through the EPA for vetting. Um, which sounds like this great regulatory system and a great reform, but the catch is that the company provides the data. So it, it's the burden of the company to prove that its chemical doesn't cause um, any any terrible problems, but it generates its own data, it does its own research. And so Monsanto managed to get it through the EPA in the 70s, and we'll talk a little bit later about some controversies around that 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 process. But in the meantime... Uh, this chemical goes out into the world. It goes international. It's used widely. It's used skyrockets in the United States. You know, it was widely used in the 70s, and then it explodes yet again in the 90s, and it's used very widely today. But there was a document that came out in 2015 that really backs up John on this claim. In fact, if this document didn't come out, John probably wouldn't be in court right now. Um it's this uh, international body through the World Health Organization, which is a part of the UN, United Nations, and it's called the it's called the IARC. That's how it's known. It's known by this acronym IARC, which stands for the International Agency for Research on Cancer. So this agency looks at it, it gathers together um, a global network of experts, and it looks at chemicals that are already in use, and it asks the question: Are they carcinogenic? And they returned a verdict that shocked a lot of people in the agricultural world in 2015, declaring that having looked at all these different studies, animal studies, studies on people exposed to the chemical, that it probably causes cancer. It's probably carcinogenic. And that document and that judgment has taken on this incredible importance and essentially provided the legal basis for these lawsuits. It's worth understanding that, you know, when uh, IARC released in March 2015 this this idea that, that quote, uh, that the glyphosate was, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, end quote, uh, that this wasn't uh, the, the sort of decision that they came to by sort of shooting first and asking questions later. They reviewed uh, a body of peer-reviewed uh, information and peer reviews as good as it gets um, in the scientific community. And we'll get to quite how good that is a little later on. Um, but th they had gone through some fairly rigorous uh, you know, sort of internal deliberations on this. And in fact, uh, it, it's, it's instructive to understand quite 
what those deliberations involved. So to understand that process at IARC, uh, we talked to Dr. Charles Benbrook of Benbrook Consulting Services, um, who is also a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins University in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. I was very aware of the, um, the IARC, or International Agency for Research on Cancer, their process and their importance. They are the um, most uh, uh, prestigious and authoritative uh, international body that's charged with uh, assessing the potential of different chemicals or exposures to different things from sunlight to radiation, uh, assessing the potential of these exposures to cause cancer, and they've been doing it for almost 30 years. And back in the day when I was the staff director of a congressional subcommittee, um, the role of the IARC in EPA decisions about whether a, a given pesticide uh, was a carcinogen or not was an important issue and something that, that our subcommittee paid attention to. When I read it, that they had classified it as a probable human carcinogen, like I said, it was just, I, I, was, I was flabbergasted uh, because, I mean, that is a very serious jump in the classification to go from uh, enough data to judge no cancer risk to humans to a probable human carcinogen. Uh, it obviously, that change in classification uh, put the, uh, the then EPA uh, judgment that, that uh, glyphosate-based herbicides pose no cancer risk, it put that into, into question, it, and it obviously was uh, going to play a, you know, a significant role in the ongoing reassessment of glyphosate in, in the European Union. And so we wanted to understand that a little better. And so to do that, we spoke to Jennifer Sass. Uh, she's a senior scientist at the National Resources Defense Council, and she has a PhD in anatomy and cell biology. And she's been following this for a while. Okay, let's um, let's shift to the reception of this of this study. Talk us through the the whole IARC situation um, and what's at stake there, and then we can go into the way that the media covered it. Sure. So one of the things that scientists do, and which IARC did um, in its assessment, is bring together experts in different disciplines or fields and then basically spread all of the data out on a table kind of thing. And they, they pretty well literally do this. They, do, they have multiple different working groups based on the scientific discipline they're in. They spread all the data out on the table, but at the end of every day and multiple times during the day, they come together and talk about it all. So that's a process that, that you know, good scientists typically use to make sure that they're mining all the information from the data that they can. Um, and, and so in putting together those data, the epidemiology is very, very important to show that these diseases occur in humans and that these exposures can be linked to these diseases in humans. The complication is that humans are complicated. They're complicated by different genetics. They're complicated by different dietary patterns. Um, some smoke, some don't smoke. Uh, they have multiple different exposures. All, many of those can be adjusted for, documented and adjusted with statistical methods that are very standard. But um, it, it does um, make the analysis more complicated. 
So what we do is we use those epidemiology studies, very, very important to um, show us links, but we also go to the animal studies in the laboratory because the animal studies are very neatly controlled. They, we know exactly what the animals were exposed to because researchers are giving them their exposure. We know they're exposed to that chemical and only that chemical or test agent. And we know for how, you know, how, how many times a day or how long or at what periods of their life they're all exposed to. So we can control uh, um, a lot of those factors in the study. So Researchers have to put all of it together, as well as, as mechanistic data. IARC found that the epidemiology data was limited, but, in, but linked to cancer, but limited. They found that the animal data was sufficient to call it glyphosate a carcinogen, and they found that the genetics um, data, the mechanistic data, showed that glyphosate could cause the kind of damage to cells and DNA that would or may lead to cancer. So it had a mechanism, a plausible mechanism. So, just so putting to, all that together is how IARC came to its decision. And just to clarify, IARC is the cancer research body of the World Health Organization. And so when it makes a pronouncement about something being carcinogenic, it's a, it's a very big deal internationally. Yep, it does all that, and even even more so. Um, IARC is part of the World Health Organization. They are the cancer arm of the World Health Organization. That's what the C stands for in IARC, cancer. They are the experts, and they have been for decades. Um, when IARC calls something a group 1, which is known, or a group 2A, which is probable human carcinogen, and for glyphosate they called it a probable, then that triggers all sorts of things around the world because IARC is an authoritative body. So, for example, the IARC listing triggered um, California to list um, things with glyphosate under its Proposition 65 right to know laws um, as known to have something in there that causes, that probably <laughs> causes cancer. Um, for example, it's also can be uh, used by workplace protection agencies like OSHA, the Occupational Self Safety and Health Agency, um, as a compensable disease. If workers are exposed to that chemical and they get the particular cancer that IARC identified as linked to it, that could be um, compensable under workers' compensation, for example. And then, of course, there's liability. And we have lawsuits in the U.S. now for people that were exposed to high levels of glyphosate over periods of years and they um, developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or blood cancer. Coming up, why it's so difficult to know what we know when it comes to the science of the chemicals that are all around us. You're listening to Pesticides, Science, and Subterfuge, a secret ingredient special produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm joined by my hosts, Raj Patel of the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs and Tom Philpott of Mother Jones Magazine. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Stay with us. For the last 10 years or so, Roundup has been the most heavily used pesticide in the United States in the history of pesticides. When you hear the word cancer, you know, it, it's like part of your life just kind of goes out of you. think that there is a, a, a split that the public the public needs to help drive a wedge between the companies that are selling the toxic products 
and the companies that are using these ingredients in products. Um, so, for example, your breakfast cereal company just wants to sell your breakfast cereal. That they're not interested in selling glyphosate. They're not interested in selling Monsanto's product. They're interested in selling cornflakes or, you know, whatever else they're selling to baby food, which we now know it's in. Or, you know, um, Ben and Jerry's is a great example. Ben and Jerry's ice cream just came up with a line of ice creams now that won't have glyphosate in them. Hmm. They didn't put it in there. They don't want to sell it. And when their consumers said, we don't want to eat it, but we like your ice cream, they went and encouraged, um, you know, sourcing of their ingredients from places that don't use it. Welcome back to Pesticides, Science, and Subterfuge, a secret ingredient special produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Rebecca McEnroy for KUT, joined by my co-hosts Raj Patel of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and Tom Philpot of Mother Jones Magazine. Still to come, tipping the scales of science. But first, a study that vindicates Monsanto and puts to rest our concerns about glyphosate causing cancer. Or does it? I'm Raj Patel, and we're back to talking about the IARC study. Remember, this was the, the study that found that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic to humans. But in 2017, a new paper came out in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute called Glyphosate Use and Cancer Incidents in the Agricultural Health Study. Um, and what this study found uh, was that there was no association between glyphosate and any solid tumors or lymphoid malignancies. There was some increased evidence of acute myeloid leukemia. But in general, this study that came out in, in 2017 seemed to, to give a, a very clean bill of health to glyphosate. So in sharp contrast to, the, to its reaction to the IARC study, Monsanto celebrated the Agricultural Health Studies publication. Scott Partridge, we've heard from the show, told Reuters at the time, this is the largest study of agricultural workers in history over the longest period of time. It is the gold standard, he said, and it definitively demonstrates in a real-world environment that glyphosate doesn't cause cancer. So that's interesting, right? I mean, there's there's something to it here. I mean, if you look at what the agricultural health study is, it's this. Um, if you live in Iowa and North Carolina and you apply for a license to apply pesticides, um, you're presented with the opportunity of enrolling in uh, the agricultural health study. And what, what that means is that uh, you and your spouse uh, fill out a questionnaire. And so since 1993, uh, 89,000 people have been involved in this long-term study. And, and that kind of looks like the gold standard for a, for a prospective study. And so to understand this agricultural health study a little better, we wanted to go back to Jennifer Sass from NRDC to explain its significance and the complexities around it. The agriculture health study is a really interesting and important um, study of pesticides and the health outcomes. It's a government-run study. It comes out of the National Cancer Institute, which is the cancer specialty unit of the National Institutes of Health, which is the premier U.S. 
um, government scientific institutes. Um, it's a study that's been ongoing for about 10 years, and what they've done is they've collected um, a lot of information from people in a couple of different states who are pesticide applicators. So these would be the people one would presume would have some of the highest exposures to pesticides and certainly the most consistent over the pesticide application season, over, over a growing season. They include both men and women, which is also important in the study, and then it's what's called a prospective cohort study. So it's a longitudinal study. They're looking forward in time. So as the years go by, they keep checking in with this cohort. They know what their exposures were um, from surveys and questionnaires and, and speaking with uh, participants, and then they're looking for diseases and health outcomes that may occur. It's a very um, strong study design from that perspective because you're looking at both the exposures and then the diseases as they occur. There's some limitations to the study design as well, and we can talk about those as we go through the results of their study. Okay, and so um, uh, recently, about a month ago, um, a group of researchers working on the study put out a, um, a report on glyphosate. And what did they find? So this was um, a really interesting update. Um, every few years, the researchers dip back into this cohort and take a look to see if there's any new disease outcomes or cancers or what's happening in this cohort, knowing that they're exposed to these pesticides. And they can use statistical methods to adjust for what the different exposures were in, the, in these people's pasts um, since they were signed up to the study, and then which diseases might be associated with those. And what they found in this study that was that there was what, what the researchers called a possible association between glyphosate use um, and acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, which is a form of blood cancer or leukemia. And the researchers warned that because this herbicide, glyphosate, is so widely used in the U.S. and around the world, that there should be strong efforts to replicate these findings, take a look at um, whether there's a link in other studies around the world, in other countries, um, as well as in the U.S., and also to follow up on these. Uh, it, it, the reason why it's important is because AML, the acute myeloid leukemia, was over twofold higher in the applicators that were in the highest exposed group compared to the applicators that had not been exposed. Hmm. Um, and it also is important because AML is a very deadly disease. It's got a very low five-year survival rate, only about one-third of people, um, and it's um, so it's not a, a curable cancer disease. And then for a couple of other ones, like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, they found what? So the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma finding was important, and it got a lot of pickup in the news. Uh, the study did not find a link with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and uh, glyphosate exposure in this in this uh, follow-up. It is possible that they will find that in future follow-ups. Cancers all take a while to come out, and the study hasn't been going that long. So um, exposures, um, <clears throat> could, it could take 10 plus, 20, 30 years for cancers to uh, become evident uh, after um, exposures that are that are high high enough or long enough or you know a, a, a particular vulnerable population to trigger a cancer event. 
So there are a lot of reasons why the study may not have found a link with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, or may not have found it yet or may not find it in the future. So when Tom quoted Scott Partridge saying that this was the definitive study, in fact what we're learning is that there's no such thing as a definitive scientific study. All we have is the weight of evidence. And that's why it's disturbing when some of the evidence is either hidden or when the evidence is bought. Uh, So, Tom, what do we know about that, and what do we know about what Monsanto has been doing in terms of scientific evidence? Well, so to answer that question, we need to go back into the 70s. We need to go back to the time when Monsanto was first getting this wonder chemical through the EPA and going through that process of showing the the regulators that this, this stuff was safe. And what sort of got us onto this whole project here in the first place was this article that came out in late 2017, in the magazine In These Times by a pair of journalists, Valerie Brown and Lizzie Grossman. Now, when I saw the name Lizzie Grossman on the article, um, I knew that it was going to be a must-read because she was a legendary environmental health journalist who basically spent decades of her career uncovering the way that the sort of chemicals coming out of enormous corporations and finding their ways finding their way into our bodies are harming us. She's shown that over and over again. Um, Lizzie died of cancer in 2017. Um, this article came out after she died. And she was just a fantastic and inspiring journalist. And so we get into the article and we find that what she and her, her co-author Valerie Brown do in this piece is they look at the record of what Monsanto was up to in the 70s in this process with the EPA. And what they uncover is that the company was emphasizing certain things in scientific studies it sponsored and hiding others. And we see and we get some fairly comical anecdotes out of this. And so we had Valerie on to talk us through some of the things that they found. Talk about this mouse study that was sort of uh, fundamental to 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 glyphosate getting registered and has sort of come up year after year um, in the process of sort of relooking at it and the different interpretations of the mouse study. Right. So the mouse study is this was the 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 oncogenicity study and it was done in uh, it was submitted to the EPA in 1983. It was done by a, a Monsanto contract laboratory, and it consisted of 200 mice. 50 in, in three different dosage groups, you know, low, medium, and high, and one group of 50 that was the control that didn't receive any glyphosate exposure. And, in, and that was like a two-year test, which is considered a lifetime study for mice of this type, type of mouse. And the results were that four mice got kidney tumors, three mice in the highest group, and one mouse in the middle dose group and no mice in the lowest dose and no mice in the control group. So the staff scientists looked at this and they said, well, it causes tumors all right, it's oncogenic, which, and it was a type of tumor that is not always malignant, but uh, often can become malignant. So it was considered, you know, this is a sign that it can cause cancer. Um, so they reported this to the people upstairs and it was the, the group that looked at these results first was the toxicology branch and then they they, you know, sort of bump these memos up and up. Uh, and um, they felt that this was just one study. They should have Monsanto repeat the study um, to try to make sure that this was a, a good result. But they did not criticize 
the methodology of the study, which was something that we saw in many, many other memos and many other um, talk screens. They complained all the time about the shoddy material that they were getting back. So this one was never questioned in terms of how well the study was done. Um, and then they de- the EPA decided to, to um, ask a group of outside pathologists to review the results. So this group, of, it was five, I think, um, five pathologists. And one of those pathologists uh, thought he saw a tumor in the control group. Now, at the time, they would, the, the scientific uh, standard was that that, that, would, that would sort of be a signal that maybe those tumors weren't a result of the treatment because the control group didn't get any treatment. And that would make some people tend to discount the results. So uh, then they revisited, they, they went and got fresh slides from the same mice that they had looked at, in, the, the, the tissues of the same mice that they had looked at in the original experiment and had a different set of pathologists, including another one that was a staff pathologist at the EPA, look at these new slides, and that tumor in the control group was not there. Hmm. So that tended to say, no, these results are good. Then the EPA uh, referred the results to the FIFRA um, Scientific Advisory Panel, which is another set of outside scientists. And that panel uh, decided that they didn't believe the 1983 mouse study that showed that the glyphosate caused tumors, and they uh, said, we, we don't think this should, should be a Class C carcinogen. We think this should be Class D. We can't classify it right now. And then a few years later, the EPA uh, put it to Class E, which is there's no evidence of carcinogenicity. So um, it looked to us like it, we, we had access to a big archive of um, EPA internal memos, which someone, and I don't know who it was, had um, made publicly available th- through a Freedom of Information Act request at some earlier time. <laughs> and anybody can go and look at these documents. But, um, you know, we didn't have access to all of the records about glyphosate that are in the possession of the EPA or in the possession of Monsanto. So we obviously couldn't get a really global picture of what happened. So it was more like what happens when, you know, people detect a planet uh, that's going around a star in another solar system. It's they infer when the planet goes in front of the star and the light from the uh, star dims a little bit because the planet is blocking a little bit of it out. You know, you see the picture, you see the outline of the elephant, you don't see the elephant itself. What we saw was the outline of Monsanto arguing at just about every step of the way that either some tests weren't necessary or this this test is should you know isn't trustworthy or no we're not we don't want to do further tests. They we never saw any evidence that they had repeated the mouse study. Despite finding things, the EPA kept saying, we think this study should be repeated. Um, the EPA never made them repeat the mouse study. So now, if you go back and look into the re-registration documents where they went through the whole thing again in 1993, and in 2009 they started a, a new re-registration process, which is not finished yet, um, you, you see that they, they still go back and they mention that mouse study, but they say the results were not... Uh, related to the treatment. 
Listening to that, it seems like one example of how uh, Monsanto is being a, a little underhanded. But I, I wonder if, if there's a pattern here. Uh, one person who thinks there is, is Pedram Esfandieri. Uh, now, Pedram is John Barton's lawyer, uh, and he is a lawyer at Baum, Headland, Aristide, and Goldman, who are uh, representing the plaintiffs in one of the lawsuits against Monsanto. Let's listen to what Pedram had to say. I wonder if you could talk us through the discovery process and how that went, how it was to deal with the company and some of the more remarkable things that you learned from it. Sure. So, again, this is a huge, huge uh, litigation. Um, there is both uh, state and federal cases pending against Monsanto Company. Um, through the federal litigation, I believe Monsanto has produced in the excess of 80 million uh, pages of documents. Uh, granted, you know, some, many of those documents are duplicates, but it's a substantial database uh, nevertheless. And um, going through the, uh, the documents, what we call a doc review, essentially trying to put the facts of the case together, some of the things that really stood out to me was um, the internal suspicions and knowledge by Monsanto companies stretching back as far as 97, 1999, regarding the potential uh, carcinogenic aspects of its product. I remember one early document being the uh, report of Dr. James Parry, who was a British, um, uh, um, I believe he was a toxicologist, um, who was actually hired by Monsanto to research the toxicological effects of glyphosate uh, Roundup um, on human cells. And Dr. Parry's report concluded that glyphosate, uh, the formulated product, has the potential to cause DNA strand breaks, uh, and it can be potentially genotoxic um, and cause cell death, which are all precursors to, to cancer. Um, and I saw this report and then the accompanying emails of Monsanto Company uh, employees discussing Dr. Parry's reports. And one of the comments, for example, was, you know, has this guy ever worked for industry before? We were very disappointed with the report. We were hoping that he would, you know, find an alter the alternative conclusion uh, and et cetera. Um, you know, how much are we paying this guy? <laughs> and, you know, it kind of, and it, it really is a cynical attitude when you have, a multi-billion dollar company, and remember, this is not Monsanto in its early days struggling to make a profit. This is Monsanto in the 1990s, right? And this is a company that's been, it stretches back to the early 20th century. Uh, it's already a, uh, is a, is a, has a monopoly of the crop market. And it really is a cynical uh, kind of state of mind to be still not concerned with the uh, potential effects on the health of consumers of your product um, when you know you <laughs> you're internally disappointed in the findings of a of a, of a scientist um, regarding the potential dangers of your product and instead of trying to go out there and warn consumers about this say hey look what dr parry found um, they never took the report further uh, Dr. Parry recommended that Monsanto do internal studies on a number of the aspects of his research. They never did that. And uh, then you are left with um, farmers such as John that ultimately become plaintiffs when this product harms them because Monsanto hasn't taken the requisite steps in ensuring that it's selling a safe product. 
But Pedram, how are you? Uh, how are you? Uh, what 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 are the the ideas that you have to help this judge, or indeed any other judge, or indeed anyone listening to this program, tell the difference between you know real and fake science? You know, it's it's, it's interesting. The uh, the judge himself has uh, remarked on this during a hearing, and this is obviously was a public hearing, and you can find the transcript um, where. Uh, we're discussing Monsanto's ghostwriting of scientific studies. And ghostwriting, obviously, for those who don't know, uh, is a process whereby uh, Monsanto, in this this instance, would write a a scientific review regarding the safety of glyphosate internally. One of the employees would do it. And then uh, they would ask a third-party supposedly independent scientist to sign their names before publishing so that once it's published, it appears to readers that, oh, this is an independent study. I have every reason to trust this because it didn't come from Monsanto. The person clearly has no financial stake. So I can then you know, use this study to build more science on top of it and uh, put my faith in it as independent research. Uh, it turns out that Monsanto has flooded the academic discourse with study would go written studies where the authors actually did have a financial incentive in the conclusions of the research. Now, we brought this to the attention of the judge at uh, a hearing, um, and uh, I remember Monsanto's uh, defense attorney making a comment about, you know, uh, plaintiffs have led you to believe that Monsanto has been ghostwriting all these documents, and, and, and the judge kind of remarked, actually, Monsanto have used the word ghostwriting in their own documents. So I think that I'm being misled by, misled by Monsanto, not the plaintiffs. Um, and, you know, I remember my colleague making a comment uh, about, you know, these documents show uh, clear corporate malfeasance, and the judge agreeing, yes, they <laughs> clearly do. I mean, there's no um, there's no two ways about it. Um, so uh, it's particularly difficult in a litigation such as this, where Monsanto has had its iron grip on the scientific literature for so long and has established such a vast network of third-party contacts uh, that it can draw upon to then, you know, uh, put out these studies and this research ostensibly under the, uh, you know, um, the cover of in- independent scientific research when it turns out it's not. Um, and you, some of the documents you can look at, for example, uh, one Monsanto toxicologist uh, says in an email um, when, when they're planning for more studies, oh, how should we handle this going forward? Should we just have the, should we just write ourselves and have the authors sign their names on? Remember, that's how we handled the other studies, and he's cited the studies that done this with. Um, and obviously, and he makes a remark in that the document about this will keep costs down, right? And then uh, doing them themselves as opposed to uh, you know outsourcing it to some third party to write the study. Uh, again, going back to this notion of These are all acts done in order to maximize profits completely at the expense of conscience and sense of responsibility to the world around you. Um, And that is a uh, a, a kind of almost a personal stake in the matter that I have as an attorney is to remind Monsanto of that personal, uh, of that responsibility that they have to the consumer and the world around them. This is such a convoluted story. I know that I only want to eat organic foods. Hopefully I can afford organic foods. But that's because I really 
don't know whether or not glyphosate, which is in everything else, will give me cancer or not. I mean, I just completely want to stay away from everything. How is the public supposed to know anything about what's safe and what's not safe? I mean, I think that the story that we just told here is very convoluted because we really don't know what we know. The way that the process works, there's very little independent research demanded by the EPA. The research that we do have that the company submitted is um, funded by the company itself. And that there is this body of evidence that we should all be disturbed by that was enough to inspire the IARC, which doesn't work for anyone except for the United Nations. It doesn't you know, directly answer to, to corporations. It doesn't make regulations. It doesn't, it's a little bit apart from those pressures. And it, the evidence to them was strong enough to say that this probably causes cancer. I think that should give us pause. Well, I mean, I'm I'm with you, and I'm also with uh, Rebecca and listeners who are baffled by this all. Because what does that? You know, I mean, are we just going to have to uh, Google IARC studies every time we go to the shops? Uh, I mean, I, I think part of the story here is, in a sense, uh, something that we've come into contact with uh, more forcefully in in the era of this administration, which is. Um, money makes knowledge, and um, and you know, in a sense, it always has. That's the, that, that's that's been the the sort of story of Monsanto, right? And and how knowledge is manufactured, and the way you tell the difference is by following the money trail. But it's also that journalism isn't enough, right? I mean, I I don't think that it's sufficient to say, well, look, if if you read the right newspapers, you'll know what to shop for. Um, I, I do think that there's what this story points to is also the structural inequalities in the production of knowledge and safety and power that need to be tackled with more than just good journalism. I mean, again, this is, this is not to cast aspersions on journalists. Some of my best friends are journalists, Tom. Um, but, <laughs> um, but I think that, that it's not enough. And I worry that if all that's standing between us and uh, you know, being poisoned by large corporations is uh, a reliance on the intrepid diggers of truth, we're missing a beat. We're missing how capitalism made this possible in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with all that. And I also I think that the story should give we journalists pause. And I think that one of the things that really makes the environment easier to get chemicals like glyphosate out in the, into the public without a lot of vetting is that there is this idea of science as this sort of pure thing that comes down from the mountain and reveals truth to us. Right. And I fear that a lot of my fellow journalists cover it that way. And I think that the scientific method is amazing and it's great and it's, and it's necessary, but it takes place, it is practiced, in this capitalist political economy that we have and that it relies on its funders in a situation where public research money is stagnant or falling over the decades and private research money has come into the void and taken over, we have to look really, really closely at the political economy of science and realize that, that there is no scientific truth. Science is a process and like any other process, it has funders it has interest behind it and i think as journalists what we really have to do we, you know we can't regulate we can't tell you what to eat but what we can do is we can interrogate science pull the veil back on it and 
try to find clarity from what's out there with an eye towards exposing the political economy at, at its base. But it also, and I think that's, insofar as that can inform the kind of organizing for structural change that you need in order to end those inequalities, I'm down with that. Uh, and I I think what, what I'm, I mean, what I've always admired about your work, Tom, is that, that it does, you, it, the journalism doesn't just sit there. Um, it is a call to certain kinds of transformation and certain kinds of action um, that don't happen in the shopping cart. In fact, you can't shop for the kinds of change that your journalism points us towards. Uh, and I think that's what's exciting to me uh, as we, we close out this show, uh, is the idea that, yes, you know, we, we do need to be buying uh uh, different kinds of things that, that don't that are not exposed to glyphosate, and God knows how hard that is. Um, but much more importantly, we need to organise to make sure that the, you know, that the, the things that are on our shelves that we ought to be able to trust are indeed trustworthy. And that comes from taking corporate money and corporate interests out of uh, knowledge and science. You've been listening to Pesticides, Science, and Subterfuge, a secret ingredient special produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Our theme music is from Bill Frizzell's album, Sign of Life. Our engineers are David Alvarez and Michael Crawford. You can subscribe to the Secret Ingredient podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Raj Patel is with the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs here at the University of Texas at Austin. Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones Magazine. And for KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. During challenging times, you count on KUT to deliver the accurate and essential news and information you need. Show your support today for the service you rely on every day with a gift in any amount at KUT.org. Thank you.